Good morning all. Wonderful to have you here at Summerhill Church this morning. Uh, it'd be great if you opened up your Bibles again to chapter 10, the second half of chapter 10 in John's Gospel. Uh, we've been working our way through uh, John's Gospel over the course of this year and today is where we're leaving it for a while. We'll come back uh, to John's Gospel in the lead up to Easter next year and we'll reflect on what John has to say about Jesus' death and resurrection that he's heading to uh, come next Easter. But this is where we leave John's Gospel for this year, uh, and so uh, really we're wrapping up uh, what we've been looking at the last couple of months. Uh, it'd be great to have that passage open, it's page 1076, uh, and on your service sheets there's a bit of an outline uh, as to some of the things that we'll be reflecting on together today uh, from the passage. uncertainty and insecurity uncertainty and insecurity they can both be exhausting and paralyzing in equal measure can't they to endure uh, faced perhaps with too many unresolved tensions too many unresolved questions in the present or perhaps forced to try and anticipate too many potential outcomes and eventualities of the future the task of enduring through uncertainty and insecurity can seem intolerable, can seem unbearable when you're in the midst of it. A well-crafted movie, of course, a little bit of suspense, can kind of be exhilarating and exciting, drives the whole plot along. But being kept in suspense about the course of our own lives can be unexpectedly crippling when it's forced upon us, especially unexpectedly. Today's passage begins with people who are gripped with exactly this sort of unwelcome and unbearable suspense. Suspense, both about the present that they're in, as well as their anticipated future. Have a look with me at just the little introduction, introductory verses to the episode of Jesus' life that's included in today's passage. So it's chapter 10, uh, and I'll read from verse 22. We read, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, peppered throughout these verses are probably, we just read over them as inconsequential bits of information, just setting the scene, so to speak. But there's peppered throughout here unwelcome and unsettling reminders of the uncertainty and insecurity that was faced by the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Uh, words and phrases, events that would have been triggering for them about their own sense of security and certainty. Uh, Solomon's colonnade is mentioned there. Uh, now, the picture up on the screen isn't the actual colonnade of Solomon, uh, but it gives you the idea of what it is, a, a row of pillars with a walkway, covered walkway behind them, and there was an enormously long colonnade at the back of the temple uh, that's being described here. Now, this colonnade wasn't part of King Solomon's original temple, uh, which was destroyed by the, uh, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, many, many years before. The, the rebuilt temple, the one that Jesus was in, never matched the grandeur, the magnificence of Solomon's original temple, which this colonnade was named after. And the colonnade, even just being called Solomon's colonnade, was an unwelcome reminder of just how inferior this new temple was compared to the original. 
even the people who built, rebuilt the temple that Jesus is now standing in, weren't that impressed with it in comparison with the original. There was a grief attached to it for them. And the fact that Jesus was walking through Solomon's colonnade during the Feast of Dedication would have brought a whole suite of other traumatic memories to mind for them as well. Now, the Feast of Dedication isn't a festival. If you go to your index and try and scour through the Old Testament, you won't find any mention of the Feast of the Dedication in the Old Testament. It's not there in the Scriptures as something that the Jewish people were commanded to keep. 400 years after the new temple had been built, Solomon's temple had been rebuilt in a new temple, another foreign ruler, the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, had overrun the Jewish temple and desecrated it, that polluted it by sacrificing an unclean pig on the altar of the Jewish temple and he sacrificed that pig to himself as the god Zeus, completely making a mockery, traumatising the Jewish people who held their god in honour. Now, the Feast of Dedication, or you might know it by the name of Hanukkah, celebrated the military victory of Judas Maccabee, who eventually defeated the Greek king Antiochus and freed and purified the temple, cleansed it so that it could go back to its original honourable worship of Israel's God. But at this moment, when Jesus is there at the Feast of Dedication, that's what they're celebrating at the time, But at that very moment, the victory celebrating the Feast of Dedication, rededicating the temple, was happening at a time when the Romans had come along and conquered the Jewish people. There must have been a real dissonance to be celebrating the freeing of the temple, the cleansing of the temple from the Greeks, when at that very moment they were just under the authority, under the power of the next conquering people, the Romans. There would have been a grief to celebrating the freedom, the purification of the temple when they were really just straight back under someone else's power and authority once again. And then there's also that mention of winter. Yeah, it's just a season. It just happened to be the time of year in which Jesus was there in the colonnade teaching in the temple. Uh, This photo up on the screen is of Ukrainian refugees from earlier this year as they fleed their home during winter. To flee as a refugee during winter is a traumatic thing to undergo. If you're not already vulnerable enough as a refugee, to have to do so during winter is doubly perilous. And actually, in both Mark's Gospel of Jesus' life and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes winter as a time of particularly bitter suffering for those of God's people who are falling under the rule of foreign powers. Jesus says, there is a day coming when even this temple I'm standing in, it's going to be destroyed as well. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter, because no one would survive if you'd go undergo that kind of trauma at this time of year. See, each of these little details that are just lobbed in there at the start of this event express something of the intolerable insecurity and uncertainty that marked the experience of God's people Israel as a nation at the time of Jesus. Successive generations burdened by the ongoing uncertainty over their political and spiritual security as a people. They were people who were constantly buffeted by first one conquering power and then the next. How long will you keep us in suspense? They implored Jesus. Literally, they say, How long until you unburden our souls? How long until you lift up our souls? We've had Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, come and trash our first temple. Antiochus Epiphanes, 
desecrated the temple that we're celebrating, thinking, remembering, recalling now at the Feast of Dedication. Now we're under the Romans. Are you or are you not the Messiah? Are you or are you not the one who will lift the unbearable burden of our history repeating again and again and again? If you're the Messiah, now is the time to tell us, to put an end to our anxiety and uncertainty. I'd imagine that in the midst of our own uncertainties and insecurities about either the present or maybe the future, we too might find ourselves crying out, are you even the Messiah, Jesus? Are you even the Messiah? How can Jesus being the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, possibly coexist with these intolerable circumstances that I'm experiencing? If I'm one of his followers, how can the two be true at the same time? How can they possibly coexist with these intolerable circumstances that I'm enduring? Just make yourself clear already. Resolve the dissonance now. If you're the Messiah, show yourself to be so. Free us from this unbearable, unresolved tensions and uncertainty. And Jesus begins to answer their desperately frustrated pleading in the next paragraph. Have a look with me at verse 25. It's not exactly the tone of answer you might have expected. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus says, my words and my works, my words and my actions, both testify to me being God's anointed one, the Messiah that you're asking about. The reason that you find, fail to find comfort in my words and the works, the actions that I do, is because you choose not to believe or entrust yourself to me. It's not because my words lack any clarity, but because you won't trust yourselves to me. And Jesus goes on to paint from this verse on, a kaleidoscopic vision of the kind of comfort that he has on offer for those who are willing to entrust themselves to him. This is the kind of comfort that these people are forsaking by not listening to and trusting his words. The next paragraph reads like a best-of compilation, a summary statement for what guarantees the security of those who entrust themselves to Jesus in the midst of uncertainty and discomfort. It's a pretty dense paragraph. Have a look with me at verse 27. I'll continue. Verse 27, Jesus says, Speaking of those who follow him, he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's a whole stack of phrases that we could settle on and reflect on what kind of comfort that they might bring for those who are willing to hear them. Jesus, we're told there, says that he knows those who belong to him. And it's not just that Jesus is saying, I can recognize, I can identify those who follow me, as if it's just a matter of pointing them out, noticing them, recognizing them. He knows them. He knows us 
with the same degree of intimacy and clarity with which he knows himself. Perhaps you've tasted a little bit of that deeply moving kind of comfort that you experience that comes from discovering that we are truly known and seen by another person. You experience that when you've just caught a glimpse that someone really has grasped, seen and known who you are. Perhaps an especially close friend who might even know us on occasion better than we know ourselves. Indeed, even our own self-knowledge, even our knowing of ourselves isn't as certain, as stable, as secure as we often like to imagine, is it? Our stable sense of knowing ourselves can even be hijacked or misled by stress or by trauma, by lack of sleep, by getting a bump to the head, even by ongoing progress of dementia. Some of us will know the unsettling experience, the unsettling sensation of what it is to seemingly lose all sense of who we thought we were. But Jesus eternally knows all those who are his. He knows us with an intimacy that soaks down deeper than even our most ingrained uncertainties and insecurities that we hold about ourselves. He knows us with a completeness that isn't vulnerable to unpleasant surprises or affection-killing revelations about who we really are in our private selves. He knows us. After the temple had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, that great king that I mentioned before, the temple was briefly given new life after it was rededicated to God's worship, and worship continued on there for several years following after. But the new life that was breathed into the temple worship wasn't everlasting. Today, the temple lies in ruins, lifeless. The kind of relief that was given when the temple was saved from the Greek, invading Greek kings, new life breathed into it, wasn't the kind of life that lasts. But in contrast, in this little section, Jesus promises to breathe new life, eternal life, into both our bodily selves and into our relationship with God. I give them eternal life, Jesus says. For some of us, it'll be our mor- the mortality of our bodily self that currently lies most heavily on us, that awareness of our own mortal frailties that is most burdensome, that creates most uncertainty and anxiety for us, that most threatens our sense of future security and certainty. For others, it is our soul that feels most lifeless to us at the present moment, leaving us unsettled and anxious about our spiritual state and standing. As you might remember, Jesus assured the Samaritan woman he met back in chapter 4 of John, Jesus says, I give eternal life. I am living water, you might remember Jesus said. He is enough to eternally revive both our failing flesh and our crushed spirits. I give them eternal life, Jesus promises. An even deeper well of security and assurance is given us, as Jesus insists, that all those who he holds securely in his hands have actually been given to him by none other than God the Father. God the Father himself has placed us into Jesus' hands. We didn't have to find our way into Jesus' protective care, so to speak. God himself has deliberately placed us 
in Jesus' care. That's why Jesus can state with such certainty that no one can snatch us out of his hand. It says that Jesus, that, sorry, that God the Father is greater than all else, that he is greater than all other things that exist. What possible threat could there be that has sufficient strength or sufficient speed or sufficient guile or sufficient authority to snatch us out of our Saviour's hand if God the Father himself has placed us there? Indeed, Jesus says at the end of that paragraph, I and God the Father in heaven are one. Whatever security and assurance God the Father holds within his hands, Jesus too offers the same security and certainty to those who will entrust themselves to him. To rest secure in the hands of Jesus is to have been irrevocably placed there by God the Father himself for safekeeping. What is, of course, truly heartbreaking as we come to the end of this passage is that those to whom Jesus is speaking here in the temple remain completely deaf to the words of comfort and assurance that Jesus is speaking to them. Have a look at how they respond. Verse 31 is where we'll pick up the conversation that Jesus is having with these people. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Actually, note here, I wonder if you notice that Jesus hasn't explicitly claimed to be God, to be divine in this immediate conversation, although there have been things that he said previously that make that point. Jesus is claiming that his unique intimacy with God the Father Yes, that's true. I am uniquely, I have a uniquely intimate relationship with God the Father at this point. But that's not a blasphemous thing to say, Jesus will go on to say. Uh, in the verses that follow, I won't read them all out, but Jesus defends his statement of his intimacy with God the Father by saying, look, even your own law, even the scriptures that you opponents hold to and believe in, even they say the same thing as what I'm saying here. Uh, have a look at Psalm 82. Uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, which I've got uh, up there on the, service, on the um, screen for you. The psalmist writes, I said, speaking of Israel, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fail like every other ruler. Here the psalmist describes God's people Israel as, I guess you could say, little g gods, as sons of God. It's as if he's describing them as chips of the old block. You know how you might speak, speak about a child as being a chip off the old block, that they represent, they reflect something of the one who is their parent? As a nation, Israel reflected something of God's godness to the surrounding nations, his character, his power, his rule. It's kind of like the way in which kids can reflect something of their parents, if you look at them from certain angles. I've got up there on the screen a photo of one of my kids, and not me, uh, but my father, their grandfather. Um, the one without the shirt is the grandfather. Sorry, Dad. Um, but you can see that, in, and you probably know this from your own families, that within your families there are aspects of a child 
that gives reflection to, that gives expression to the truth and the reality of the one who is the parent. And Psalm 82 is simply declaring that even though they are only mortal flesh, mortal frail human flesh, Israel represented something of God in themselves. And Jesus says, you don't have a problem with that, do you? Jesus is saying to the opponents, you're happy to say that as a nation you represent something true of God? How then you can object to me being called the Son of God, the one that God himself has uniquely set apart to represent himself to the world? See, these folk had heard Jesus speak on countless occasions. They had seen Jesus act in the most extraordinary sorts of ways. If only they were willing, they could have recognised the family resemblance between the Son and God the Father who sent him. They had every opportunity to recognise in Jesus his resemblance to the Heavenly Father. If only they'd been more attentive to Jesus' words and his actions. Might they have recognised Jesus as God's gift to deliver them from all uncertainty and insecurity that had left their anxious hearts and spirits nervously on edge? The closing verses of John 10 offer us a sobering reminder that the truth about Jesus wasn't impossibly obscure. It wasn't impossible for for those to see who had eyes to see it. Uh, Have a look with me at how these verses, this passage closes. Just by way of a reminder, we've had three or four chapters of Jesus doing the most remarkable things, performing the most amazing signs, teaching the most profound and insightful things about his own relationship to God the Father, only for people to be ready to stone him at the end of it, to kill him. And then there's this weird little end to this section of John's Gospel that comes at the very end. Have a look with me, verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. There Jesus stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John, that is John the Baptist, never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Out here in the wilderness, without the amazing signs performed in Jerusalem and in the temple, without Jesus' teaching being offered and the most public teaching places in the city of Jerusalem, we find people trusting who Jesus is simply on account of John the Baptist, what John the Baptist had testified about Jesus. They saw in Jesus a reflection of their heavenly father, the one who had sent him, and they entrusted himself to him. And friends, there should be enormous comfort for us in that as well. We only have the testimony of those who saw and witnessed what he spoke, what he did. But we too can see enough of a reflection of the heavenly father's character in Jesus to know that he is someone who is worth entrusting ourselves to that in him we will find a balm for all of the uncertainties and insecurities that might in the present and for the future seem to make things intolerable for us. Let's pray that we would entrust ourselves to him and find peace and rest in doing so. Dearest Father, you know that our hearts tend towards 
insecurity, uncertainty, that that can be overwhelming and crippling, that even when we can present a clear and steady and stable front, it's not far below the surface that our own anxieties or fears might lurk. Father, we ask that you might open our eyes, that you might lift our eyes from those things that trouble us, that in Jesus we would see the one who knows us fully and completely, that in Jesus we would see the one into whose hand you have placed us securely, that in Jesus we would see the one who is you with us in human flesh, and that you might enable us to entrust ourselves to him, that we might believe and find peace and rest in him also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.